Welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Roger Landis. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching, research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory. In this second series, produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts, we talk about how the VMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to return to our At The Movies Film Club series to welcome a special guest, documentary filmmaker and friend of the VMC, Chris Simon. Welcome, Chris. Glad to have you here. Happy to be here. We'd like to start these guest episodes by inviting folks like yourself to reflect upon how the idea of the vernacular, whatever vernacular means to you, intersects with the work that you do. But even before that, Maybe we could start out by asking you about your day job and about the life events that brought you to that current gig. Well, my gig is my own. I have a small film company called Sageland Media here in Salt Lake, and um, I'm a folklorist. That is actually not my day job because the documentaries are my day job, but that's how I was trained, and that's how I ended up coming to film, although I will say that a lot of us serendipity. I happened to move next door to Les Blank, great documentary filmmaker. We fell in love. I started working with him. So there I was able to put my folklore training into real life situations. Yeah. And we're, we're, Les is a great icon for us at the VMC. And Roger and I have individually been fans of his films for years. His films about music and about street culture and about food, about which we will have more to say in today's episode, and uh, huge admirers of what he's done. And in fact, we featured uh, the films in uh, a previous episode of At The Movies. But we also really want to talk about the work that you're currently involved in. And um, I maybe Roger can set us up how we first came to get to know you in person, Chris. Yes, it was about five years ago, I think. Uh, was it the 2016 Flatland Films Fest uh, Festival in Lubbock uh, brought you, Chris, and um, uh, Maureen in with Mr. Chris Drockwitz uh, to premiere in the Southwest or in, in West Texas um, the film that you made about Chris Drockwitz and about, about um, uh, his Arhuli Records project which is called Ain't No Mouse Music. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us about that, Chris? Sure. This Ain't No Mouse Music is a portrait of Chris Strockwitz and Arhuli Records. Now, Chris is one of the major producers of, I guess he does call it vernacular music, um, to differentiate it from strictly folk and traditional. Um, but yeah, so he's like one of the major producers. And one of the things that I found fascinating about Chris, who has been a friend of Maureen Gosling and mine for many, many years, um, is that 
you know, at that time, a lot of people like Alan Lomax, they were putting, they were going out recording the same type of music, but they were putting it in an archive, which is great. But Chris, his objective was to get it out to the people. So, and he did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> he did. It's, it's, an, it's a remarkable label. And I remember when, when Chris came to uh, the Flatland Film Festival and you and Maureen Gosling were both with him, and it was great to meet all of you and to see the film and then get a chance to hang out and hear Chris and yourselves tell stories. And Chris is a remarkable man, and I don't think we could possibly sum up his character. You just really need to see the film. But I did share at that time that uh, I think I went to school on one of the very first records that Arhuli ever put out, because I remember the Arhuli logo and back in those days when we had LPs. And uh, it was, um, it was, I think it was Mance Lipscomb, That's the Texas right. songster. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, there was a great moment. I'll just tell the story briefly, and then we'd love to hear more about the mouse music film. Uh, Chris came to one of our music classes at, as part of his attendance in Lubbock, and and he stood up. He's a very distinguished man, Polish aristocrat, you know, and and uh, has a very strong personality. And he was talking to these college students, a hundred music students in a classroom, and he said, "Well, the first record that I made was by a." A musician you've never heard of, um, and I don't know why I, uh, why you would have ever heard of, heard of this person, um, Mance Lipscomb. And way in the back of this lecture hall, this little blonde trumpet player put up her hand and said, I know who Mance Lipscomb is. My family knew his in Minnesota, Texas. And Chris Strockwitz was, oh, well, oh, well, in that case. And then we had this wonderful conversation, but there was a lot of synchronicity during that visit. So tell us about the synchronicity of making this film, This Ain't No Mouse Music. Well, I will say that for me and Maureen, um, this was like home movies. In fact, a lot of them were, a lot of what we used were home movies because we had both been friends with Chris for 40 years. And we got, we got to follow Chris around. We went to Texas. We went to Navasota. We went to Louisiana and saw the Savoy family and the Chenier's and Oh my gosh, there's so many. We ended up eventually going to um, Appalachia, where Chris was not as familiar. Um, with, he hadn't been there a whole lot, but we visited a friend of his who was a folklorist, and he took us all around, and we discovered this, or he had discovered, and oh my gosh, I'm forgetting his name right now, um, but he had discovered this young music, bluegrass group called No Speed Limits, and featured a young woman named Amber Collins. This is one of the highlights of our experience in the film. She sang in the old style way and she just powered it out. Chris was in heaven. I mean, I think in the film there's like, he, he is, I mean, he's a, you know, kind of a German aristocrat and very tall, very noticeable. And he just had a little camera in his hands and was smiling like he only smiles when he hears the most incredible music. So, yeah, so that was, that was a wonderful thing. I mean, and one of the things we like to do is meet people and learn more about them than just their music. So.
We were just listening to the music of the bluegrass band No Speed Limit featuring the lead vocals of Amber Collins. And that's an audio clip from the wonderful documentary portrait of Mr. Chris Strockwitz of Arhuli Records, uh, made by one of our guests uh, on our program today, Chris Simon. The film is entitled This Ain't No Mouse Music. Now, we were just rem uh, reminiscing a few minutes ago about your visit to Lubbock, uh, Chris Simon, and with Chris Strockwitz and with Maureen Gosling uh, to premiere the movie at the Flatlands Film Festival. And it had been, when that when you visited, it had been a number of years before I had listened to very many Arhuli records, although I spent years doing that uh, when I was younger. I went back after that meeting, went back and looked at the catalog, and I have this distinct memory of just looking at the incredible variety and depth of that catalog and thinking, you know, this land is our land. This is, this to me, that I all of a sudden I just had this feeling for the sound of democracy is the only way I could put it. I know that's not very elegant, but that's the that's the effect that looking back through that catalog had on me. And one of the reasons why um, I hold him in such high regard and why I was excited to meet him and why your visit there uh, was uh, so important. And now over to Chris Smith, uh, who will take us into our next segment. You know, we're here with Chris Simon, our, our good friend of the Vernacular Music Center, documentary filmmaker. And we promise that we will talk about the wonderful projects that Chris is working on right now. She sent us some materials in advance. But um, because Mr. Chris Strockwitz was kind of our the, the, the linchpin that brought us all together, maybe we could hear one more excerpt from the This Ain't No Mouse Music film. And Chris Simon sent us um, an excerpt which she called How Strockwitz Found Lightning. And, and Chris, could you set this up for us a little bit? Yeah, this, uh, this was probably back in the very early 60s. And at that point, Chris was a high school teacher, Spanish high school, not Spanish, German high school teacher back in California. And But he had a group, the, the folk music revival was just beginning to go, and he was real fanatical about blues. And he, his favorite person was Lightning Hopkins who is, of course, from Texas. and But nobody at this point knew where he was. I mean, they knew of him. They, he'd done these recordings in the past. So this was kind of like one of the big quests that all the folky types were on. And um, I think he Chris can describe the adventure better than me, so I'll let him do that. Okay. This is Chris Strockwitz and Lightning Hopkins, two absolutely larger-than-life personalities from the film This Ain't No Mouse Music. We had no clue where people like Lightning Hopkins or those people were from. There were some French jazz magazines that were saying, well, he may be from Mississippi, he may be from the East Coast, we don't really know. Sam Charter suddenly sent me a postcard. Chris, I found Lightning Hopkins. He lives here in Houston, Texas. That was just like getting the Holy Grail. I mean, oh shit. I had to go see Paul Lightning. Travel from town to town, to find a friend. So that's another excerpt from the wonderful documentary that brought all of us in this room together, the documentary about Chris Strockwitz, A Life in Music, called This Ain't No Mouse Music. Chris, uh, there was something that you were telling us on the break about this excerpt. Well, I've heard this hundreds of times at this point, his, his stories, and but it just gives me a real thrill. I mean, the idea of 
walking in and there's Lightning Hopkins and he's singing a song to you, just like Chris describes. I mean, it's beyond belief. It's, and he brings it alive. Mr. Chris does himself. Yes, he Yeah, does. he is an amazing raconteur. Another thing I remember from that, uh, from that visit that you guys made uh, as part of the Flatland Film Festival was the hang at my house afterwards when we had oh, yeah. ourselves and yourself and Maureen and Mr. Chris and our colleague, Lauren Salazar. And uh, I, it, rem it reminded me of something that Roger said to me years ago about a folk music summer camp that he organized for a number of years. And he said, you know, the wonderful festival called Zookfest. And he said, you know, sometimes you go through a lot of effort to put a certain combination of people in the room because you know that the hang afterwards is going to be really special. And that sounds like a kind of a, a throwaway line, but it's a real, it's really true. You know, you get certain groups of people in the room, whether it's Chris Strockwitz and Lightning Hopkins or Chris Strockwitz and uh, the rest of us literally sitting at his feet and really magical things happen. And it does really bring it alive, as you say, Chris. So I, I do want to move on, though, and also talk about uh, items that you yourself have worked on and are working on. And I, I was particularly struck by the excerpts that you sent us from this film called Dutch Hop. And I, I'm not going to try to describe it because just like Chris Strakowitz, I think Chris Simon can probably do the very best job of all of describing what this what this doc is and why you find it uh, a fascinating topic. Well, Dutch hop is a very specific type of music, and it's also probably one of the more obscure ones in uh, the U.S. It's music of the Volga Germans, who basically live in Nebraska, Wyoming, and Colorado at this point, along the Platte River Valley. And they have a very unique style. That, I mean, the Volga Germans, they're people that went from Germany to the Volga River to farm at the invitation of Catherine the Great. And when the re revolution happened, they came to America. Um, Lawrence Welk was one, as a matter of fact, although he wasn't a Volga German, but he was a he was a German from Russia. There's two types. Um, so the Volga Germans have this, and the thing, it's like polka music. I mean, it is polka music, but it features the hammer dulcimer. And at this point, it has no words, too. And a beautiful little, and it's a dancing style as well as a musical style. And I knew nothing about it when I was approached to do this film by three other folklorists, Annie Hatch, Georgia Weir, and um, Gwen Meister. But my sound recordist and David Silberger, Silverberg and I went out there and it was fantastic. Just a wonderful community sense of belonging and beautiful dancing and incredible music and you know, I can guarantee you 99% of the people that live out there along the Platte River Valley know nothing about it. Well, I'm sitting here about 16 miles south of the Platte River in Nebraska. Uh, I'm in Hastings, Nebraska, and I had never heard of it until we started talking. Not that I'm a Nebraska ex expert. I'm very much a guest here uh, for a short time. But uh, um and I mentioned it to a couple of people who are from here and they didn't know about it either. So you were at various uh, sites along the Platte River Valley? Yeah, we were We were in Torrington, Wyoming. Mm -hmm. We were um, near where you are. Um, let's see, where did we go? But it's mainly like, 
Scotts Bluff mm -hmm. is a big center. Mm -hmm. And then Greeley, Colorado, yeah. Fort Collins. So it really does follow the, the, the river. river. Yeah. That's because <laughs> that's where people can. Yeah, that's quite a ways uh, west of where I where I'm sitting right now, near Gra Grand Island. Um, so it, 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 fascinating that they have this music retention. I'm. This is trivial, may seem trivial, but I want to know if they still use the German name for the dulcimer, the Hackbrett. Yeah, they do. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, wow. the interesting thing is, uh, even though they went to Russia for 200 years, they stayed German. They had their own towns. They were quite isolated. I mean, of course, there, there's some discussion that perhaps the Ukrainian, the style that they play with the Hackbrett is actually Ukrainian, but no one is certain. Um, we'll leave it to future people. And a part of me goes... Does it matter? But you, it probably matters to you guys because you're scholars too. <laughs> well, you know, as someone who follows um, instrument paradigms through history and who has dealt with the kind of the thorny issues of what they're called, when and where, yeah, I, I'm really impressed that a community displaced for two centuries and then displaced again to uh, the upper uh, plains of the United States would retain the original German name of that instrument. I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners will find that trivial, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> There's people that show up from Kansas and Nebraska, Colorado, Wyoming, some from Montana and maybe the Dakotas that are kind of groupies, <laughs> you know, for polkas. These people like polka music, and they like to come and touch on it. So that's a wonderful short sampler from a film that Chris Simon, our guest, has been working on a film called Dutch Hop. And we heard Roger and Chris uh, before that excerpt speaking sort of about where this music comes from and where it went to and why it is the way that it is. And uh, I found myself watching this when you sent us this clip, this clip Chris, and, and really thinking about the process and the mechanics. And, and I thought maybe because Roger is also very knowledgeable about, about film, maybe Roger, you could kind of help us help Chris understand how this stuff gets made. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask kind of a, a two-part question that I think is probably, your answer will probably relate them. Uh, if not, I'm sorry. But one thing is I want to know how your training as a folklorist informs the process of your filmmaking. In other words, how do you start? I mean, what's the first thing that you do before you turn that you show up and turn the camera on? Then the next part is, once you're in an environment and you're starting to see and hear and relate to people, how do you, what's, what's your process then? I mean, do you, do you look for a certain kind of starting place or do you just start filming or how do you, how do you approach that? Well, that second question is the easier one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I didn't know much about Dutch hop at all before we started this film. My friends, Annie Hatch and 
Gwen Meister and, and Georgia had been researching it for 10 years. So it was really their baby. And I arrived with my sound recorders, David Silberberg, who I've worked with since he was literally a kid. Um, and, you know, we were, didn't know much at all. We sat, I can, and we hadn't learned a whole lot beforehand. I'd listened to some music. I'd been told about people, but I had actually been told, well, they won't hardly talk to you because they're very dour Germans and they don't like to emote. Oh, great. <laughs> it's wonderful. And so that's pretty much what we knew when we landed there. I mean, of course, Annie and Gwen and Georgia were there helping us throughout the whole way. I mean, they were the cultural experts. Okay. And we were the technical. Um, but I can remember standing there at, the, at our first Dutch hop, me and David. And it was a very complicated sound situation, you know, and of course, people never do what you want. And um, just being stunned and not knowing what to do. Finally, I just picked up the camera and started shooting the dancing. Hmm. Um, and I like to dance with the people. So wandering in and out and with their feet and also, um, you know, that kind of broke the ice being ready to immerse yourself. And I think that's something that I did learn in folklore school because, you know, yeah, you just have to break those barriers in whatever way it takes. And sometimes it takes, you know, being foolish. And a lot of times it takes acting, asking a lot of stupid questions. And I certainly did that. I mean, it wasn't hard. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a, uh, nevertheless, there, there's a wonderful vibe in these excerpts, we've got another excerpt coming up in just a second, uh, because it, despite what the the person who spoke to you in advance said, oh, they're very dour Germans. They the vibe that comes from them is very warm, and they're very engaged with each other, and they're actually I'm not the Cine East here, but they're very engaged with the camera. They seem very open and and outgoing. I think that's got to be the proof in the pudding that you found ways to to get inside there, Chris. Well, and I also, I, I do think that's all true. And um, I think that one of the ways that, get, that gets broken is not the camera itself, but to being truly interested and learning to listen, um, which means you don't talk. You just ask occasional question if you have to. Um, these are all things, you know, lots of people know. Um, there's, I found the people to be wonderfully open and frank, and, and I'm not sure what the difference was, except it was not a formal type of interview, I think, helped. And knowing, I mean, David and I are right out there trying to learn to dance, and I think that also helped a lot, broke a lot of ice. I, I can imagine that if the community sees you uh, meeting them kind of in their space and on their terms, that must really put them at ease and help them to feel good about uh, the process that's going on. Uh, with, that's with, true. With and then in the editing process, you cut out the ones that aren't that way. <laughs> at right. least I do. I mean, I don't have a lot of, I mean, even with experts, some of who want to be very experty, I, I, I don't like that. I, I want the, the personal and warm touch. Mm -hmm. So less analysis and more kind of conversational and experiential. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I see that coming across your film. So that, that makes total sense to me. 
it makes total sense to me. It's something I thought of. I said this to Roger when Chris, when you first sent us this these this list of links and then some additional clips and sound files and that kind of thing. I looked at them and I and I I messaged Roger and I said, "Man, this episode is going to be great because the wealth of stuff that's coming to us." And I say this not to take anything away from anybody, but as I saw, as I feel I saw in the the Strockwitz No Mouse music film, it, it, also something, Chris, that I see in Les's films, which is that there's always a sense of people. Yeah, the music is awesome and the environments are incredible and the sheer idiosyncrasy of the settings or of lightning in Houston or people eating garlic or or whatever it is. But there's always this in the films that you guys make and that you continue to make, there's always this sense that the the film is actually engaged with the people who are on screen and and it comes back. It, it feels like it's coming back. That's one reason that I call the films portraits rather than, you know, analyses. I mean, you wouldn't call it that, but you know, uh, something else because there's room. If you want to know what key it is in or whatever, you can go find that out online nowadays. So we don't need to put that in the film. What we need to get in the film is to engage you and make you excited in whatever way you happen to be excited so that you go out and find out who Lightning Hopkins is or who you know Bob Schmier is or who Mike Beck are or Kenny Hall. Because probably you might not have known about him before. At least that would be my hope. I mean, I mean, not that you didn't know about him, but that you want to know more. And so you can get those intellectual expert questions answered elsewhere. That's very interesting to me because it, it helps me explain to myself something I've been seeing in, in some filmmakers' work. Um, not every filmmaker lets you see who they are on the other, on their side of the, from their side of the camera. Um, there are some filmmakers who absolutely, uh, demand that. And you back in the, in the days of the Hollywood, uh, um, studios that were so powerful, there was a thing called editing and camera. In other words, you didn't shoot anything you didn't want in your film because you didn't have control of final cut. And so those filmmakers, I'm thinking of John Houston as one, have a tremendous personality from their side of the camera. I get the feeling from watching your footage about who you are. Now, I've, I met you before I saw these, these films, but I think your personality and your values really come through um, that lens uh, in a way that uh, I find very satisfying. So, Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. that that's what we want. We're talking this week on this guest episode of Voices from the Vernacular Music Center with a friend of the Vernacular Music Center, longtime friend who we got to know through 
the good offices of the inimitable Chris Strachwitz. We're talking with our friend Chris Simon, who runs a company called Sageland Media, which is a documentary film company. We've been speaking about Mr. Chris, and we spoke some about Les Blank, uh, who's a touchstone for all of us in different ways. And uh, we've also been hearing some excerpts from a wonderful film on um, another kind of vernacular music that uh, is called Dutch Hop, which and Chris has been sharing both some excerpts and also some anecdotes about the priorities that go into making a film like this. So, Chris, we've got some more material, some other clips that you sent, that you sent and that have also brought along. And I, I've got this one clip here from uh, an artist named Mike Beck. Can you tell us about Mike Beck and what about him made you want to do this film? Well, Mike is um, is a musician that's been around quite a while, the cowboy poetry circuit. Um, and he's, I mean, he started out in bluegrass and went on from there. He, But he was, in his youth, an actual cowboy and rode the range the whole bit out there in Nevada. And a lot of his, or I shouldn't say a lot, um, but a lot of the music that he composes has dealt with that experience, which is unusual. And a lot of cowboy singers, they don't know which end the horse you get on. Um, but Mike does. He's a real deal. That's what attracted me. I, I mean, I'll, he's a really wonderful musician, incredible musician, and wonderful storyteller, sort of like Rambling Jack Elliott, who he actually traveled with for many, many years. So, I mean, that, the, but those are the things that are, he, he's authentic. He has that vernacular flavor that um, the center is all about. But these are his own songs. I mean, he, he can do folk music, but he composes his own too. And, and those to me are the strongest. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a whole world of singing and songwriting tradition around the experience of being a cowboy, of being a range rider, of, of that the work that they did, about which I knew almost nothing uh, until I moved to the American Southwest to teach at Texas Tech. We have a, a ranching heritage center, which for listeners who don't know it, it's a kind of historical um, interpretative center on the Texas Tech campus, which has a number of vernacular buildings that have been brought from all over the state or reconstructed or physically moved. And uh, there is a there is a, a resident interpreter who is immensely knowledgeable about the experience of Anglo and also Latino and also Black cowboys, uh, and the very very rich history there. And then also there's a very strong connection between the Ranching Heritage Center and the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering and those things. So it's a whole world of experience, which, as with so many documentary films the film becomes a kind of window into the experience for those of us who wouldn't previously maybe have encountered it at all. That's true. I've worked with the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering for over 20 years. And that's where I met Mike Beck, who's just one of the many people that carry on the traditions. I mean, he, he's still involved in the horse world, I should say. He just doesn't cowboy on the range anymore. I love the story of Reuben Mullins, true story. And in 1860, he came out from back east like a lot of guys did to be a cowboy. And he got a job um, in Wyoming after the big cattlemen's convention they'd have in Sheridan, Wyoming. They'd hire crews. And so I read the book and I went, wow, 110 years later, I was in northeastern Nevada 
working at the Spanish ranch and we pretty much worked the cattle the exact same way that they did it back then. So I thought, well, things hadn't changed much. So when I wrote the song, I called it Reuben's song, but it's a little bit of my life, a little bit of his. That was an excerpt from an upcoming film uh, profile of the cowboy singer and songwriter Mike Beck with his song Ruben's Song, the film by our guest on uh, Voices from the VMC this week, the documentary filmmaker Chris Simon. Yeah, it's great to have you here, Chris, and it's great to hear the material from upcoming projects, current projects, projects that we have already encountered and love, um, but also things that are are still very much um, still very much percolating. And uh, I was really delighted when you sent me this playlist and also these additional clips to see a musician, a California musician, whose name I literally hadn't thought of in many many years. But I do remember when I encountered his name for the first time. Because he was, back in those same days that we were speaking of our Hooli LP, 12-inch LP vinyl records, uh, this next musician, about whom I hope you will tell us and how you met him, this is somebody who I first encountered on an LP with, uh, uh, with the Boys of the Loch, the Scot Scottish-Irish band, <laughs> the Boys of the Loch, crazily enough. So tell us about Kenny Hall. Well, Kenny Hall um, was a musician in California who played old time music. Um, he was born blind. He grew up basically um, in San Jose, but, but he attended the California Blind School, which was in Berkeley. And that brought him in contact with all different types of cultures. And he just ate up all the music. He plays mandolin, banjo and fiddle and all, but mandolin is probably his uh, most famous way he plays. He has several bands over the years. Sweet Smell String Band was the first one. And then Long Call String Band. And he did play with Boys of the Law, who I don't know whether he met them at a folk festival or whether he met them when they took a trip to Ireland. But oh, that just, I mean, Kenny, in spite of being blind, he or maybe because, I mean, he would take these giant walks in like the Sierras of California, no dog, no cane, no nothing. And he would just walk along, he would sort of radar, click his tongue and bounce, bounce um, the sound off. And that's how he knew where he was. There was a wonderful music camp called Sweet Smell outside of Fresno. And he was a regular there and he taught generations of musicians, old time music. And a lot of time he learned it off records. So that's interesting. Here, when you were talking about his background, I'm thinking, well, I wonder if people from the Appalachians had relocated to that area 
um, say during the Dust Bowl or after the Dust Bowl or or with the mobilization for World War II, and maybe that's how he accessed it. And then you just said that he he was learning a lot off of records. That's that is fascinating. Um, just for the mandolin players who are listening. Um, Kenny Hall played what most mandolin players, at least American mandolin, mandolin players, would call uh, a tater bug mandolin, the old Neapolitan style that originally comes from Italy. But he played it in his lap with the neck straight up, neck is vertical, and he used his right index finger, just the finger and the fingernail, to pick with. He didn't even hold the thumb against the index finger the way most of us would if we were trying to play without a pick. Um, he used his index finger and got an amazing sound, uh, as you uh, uh, you will hear. When other kids wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer, Kenny wanted to be an Oki. That's really what he wanted to be. <laughs> That's the wonderful mandolinist, banjo player, fiddle player, Kenny Hall, playing Turkey in the Straw and Fresno Chilies. I was delighted to finally see Kenny Hall on film, having seen uh, still photos of him and uh, heard his playing on the LP with the Boys of the Luck called Good Friends, Good Music, which is maybe one of the, maybe the second traditional music, traditional Ireland, Scottish LP that I ever heard. And Kenny Hall was on that record. I remember being very struck by the playing position with which he played that taterbug mandolin. While we were listening to Kenny Hall, we were also having a bit of a chat amongst ourselves about this whole definition of vernacular. And Chris Simon did say to us, well, you know, I never answered your question about how does the vernacular enter into what you do? And uh, we started to get, we started to delve into definitions. And so I shared with her the definition that listeners to the podcast have heard before, which is for us in the Vernacular Music Center, the vernacular has is the widest possible umbrella term. And when we say vernacular, we mean music that is learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory, often with demonstration and imitation and critique. And then you came back at us with a question about that, Chris. Can you tell the listeners the question you asked? Yeah, I mean, my question, and I, of course, when you asked me, when you forewarned me that we were going to be talking about this, I called up on my folklorist friends. <laughs> what does vernacular mean? Because <laughs> I, I would define vernaculars of the people, and that's probably where I would leave it. And um, which to me implies that there's interaction involved, that it's it's not just a commercial venture that, you know, it might be anything from sitting around the back porch. But it, I mean, to me, it's also Kenny Hall listening, getting inspired by, you know, I think the young man in my clip says, Kenny wanted to be an Okie. That's true. <laughs> he, he wanted, he was loved that music, it wrote, the Maddox Brothers and Rose and all these other groups that were coming in with the Okies when they came to California. That's probably where he got the inspiration to find the music, but because he was blind and in the school environment, a lot of times he went to um, stacks of records, 78 records usually, and learned the old music. Um, but 
the thing that to me, I mean, which I doesn't exclude his vernacular to me because he always did it in a community setting. But the thing that was most important about Kenny is him passing it along to other people, young people specifically. And with that, I mean, his legacy is still going strong. Well, we, I think Chris Smith and I individually, but also with the Vernacular Music Center, we consider recording to be part of that process. We're process oriented. If somebody asked me for my definition of vernacular, I would say, well, I have a little bit of a ling linguistic background. And the, the term does come from linguistics. It means basically your mother tongue, the, 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 the language that you learn in the home and that there are musical languages that are learned in the home. So in, in terms of that setting, that context, that gives um, kind of a richness to the idea of vernacular music. But in the, in the center, we tend to put our emphasis on process rather than product. And if there are physical objects that are part of that process, it doesn't really matter because it's the process that matters. If, if the dissemination or the acquisition of the, of the repertoire comes from a recording, what's more important is who made the recording rather than that it is a recording. And I, and I'm, I'm sure that you probably would agree that Kenny, Kenny Hall's sources were probably great sources for him and for, for us. Um, so yeah, well, I think I see that all as a part of the same process. Well, like the, the Dutch hop people are very proud that they do not use any type of written music mm -hmm. in the traditional. Mm -hmm. they, they'll have it for, you know, when they're doing a cover song. Mm -hmm. um, but the traditional, they have, they'll change tapes, they'll do recordings, but no written music. And of course, I mean, Kenny Hall didn't have any music. Mike Beck doesn't have any yeah. written down music when he's playing. I mean, you know, that that's probably... I've never seen it for any of these musicians that I'm thinking about. <laughs> yeah, and and the the fact of the matter is that that I thought something that I think that your films and and the stuff that you've done with Maureen and the stuff that you guys did years ago with Les Strakowitz and the recordings that you, that Kenny learned from and the process, especially Chris Simon, that you you mentioned about Kenny caring about passing it along to the younger people. To us, that is the heart of. The vernacular process because as roger said it's not well was it an object or was it from sheet music or was it from a living musician or it's it's for us it's what is the process and is the process about people learning and teaching and passing it on between people and communities and chris simon what you were describing about your process um filming in um the environments of the Dutch hop film. And I'm sure that it's probably similar on many of the projects that you worked on. If I may be so bold, I would like to, pr to propose to you that you're a vernacular filmmaker, that you get in the thick of it and that your process is part of the vernacular process for the time that you're working with that, with that community. Um, I would include you in the definition. Well, that would make me very, very proud. I, I really can't think of anything nicer than to be a, a vernacular filmmaker. And, uh, you know, it, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> okay, we'll get you a certificate from the VMC. <laughs> and, in the meantime, and in the meantime, we will say most sincerely, what a delight it always is to speak with you, Chris Simon. What a delight it is to see the work that you do and the, the communities that come through that work. Well, take me back to Texas, gentlemen. I'd love to 
visit Lubbock again. We'll come back and we'll take you to the Ranching Heritage Center and we'll go in some of those vernacular buildings. And I, yeah. I want to thank you, Chris Simon, for allowing me to see a lot of what I've been hearing all my life. Um, there are a lot of, there are lots of music or lots of films with music in them. There are lots of films about music. There are not that many films that show vernacular music in uh, a visual medium and a visual language that makes sense with that vernacular sound. So thank you for that. Thank you. Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith and produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for images, video and audio playlists, guest bios, and our links to online streaming and reference services. We want to particularly invite you to our new collaborative Friends and Voices of the VMC on YouTube. And please remember to like, share, and leave reviews, because of course that's how more listeners hear about us. We tweet at Woke Academic and VMC Voices. Special thanks to our podcast guest, Chris Simon. Our post-production engineer is Gavin Stockard, and our VVMC administrative coordinator is Heather Belts. Check out her Possibly Haunted podcast. You can find our website at vernacularmusiccenter.org slash podcast. Special thanks, as always, to our podcast consultant, Seed Pod Productions, at seedpodmedia.com. And we'll see you next time.